Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 44, verses 14 to 34. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is it that you, that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has not found the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose the hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother. The child is his, is his old age. His brother is dead, and he, he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I might set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall, not, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the word of my Lord. And when the father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to show. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that boy is not with, not with us, he will die, and your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant to your father with sorrow to show. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Maranatha Grace Church. Uh, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today and bringing God's word. Uh, greetings from Colorado. That's where we've been for the past couple months uh, at a our bed and breakfast up here, working away on different things. I know we've all been scattered and remote for uh, several months now, but uh, I want to encourage you that God is faithful and that even this will come to an end. And <clears throat> I want to, you all to know that we're thinking of you and praying for you, and I'm looking forward to uh, sharing God's word with you. So would you join me in prayer? 
Father, thank you for your love for us and how it is abounding and full, that it knows no limit. Lord, that no matter how discouraged we may feel or how nervous or fearful, uh, no matter how we have stumbled in the past, Lord, your love pursues us and it transforms us. Lord, thank you for sending your Son uh, to redeem us from our sin and to bring us into new life with you. Pray that you would uh, be with us, be with everyone listening this morning uh, as we consider your word and consider the story of Joseph and what we can learn from it and how we can see you working powerfully throughout it. So I pray for this. I pray for all those listening that they would have uh, attentive ears and hearts, whatever their circumstances. And Lord, I pray that you would work and have the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the sermon today is called God's Plan Unfolding. And if you remember, we're studying the life of Joseph. That's what we've been doing for the past several weeks. Uh, Joseph was the favorite of Jacob's sons. His brothers were jealous of him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. Joseph uh, becomes a slave in Egypt. Uh, but God is with him through that. Uh, even through the ups and downs, he eventually becomes the most important official in Egypt after Pharaoh. He's in charge of gathering food during the seven uh, good years of harvest to prepare for the seven lean years. Uh, <clears throat> and you heard last week, Pastor John was preaching about when the famine, the seven lean years began, the famine extended all the way to Canaan. It affected Joseph's family, his brothers and his father. Uh, and they become desperate for food, and so Jacob sends ten of his sons down to Egypt, but he keeps one. He keeps his youngest, Joseph's younger brother Benjamin, uh, at home. He doesn't trust him with the brothers. He doesn't trust him on the journey to Egypt. He wants to keep Benjamin uh, near at hand. So the brothers go to Egypt. Uh, Joseph recognizes them and asks about their family. He calls them spies, and they insist that they're not. He keeps one of them, Simeon, uh, in prison, sends the others back to Jacob, to Canaan, and tells them that they won't see his face again unless they bring the final brother, Benjamin, the youngest, back with them. So they go back uh, to Canaan. They relate all the news to Jacob. He's understandably upset about this, um, and that's where we left things off last week. Now today, we're going to be discussing the second trip that the brothers take, where they come back to Egypt because the famine is continuing on. They still need food, uh, and they need to go to Egypt to get food from Joseph, but they have to take their youngest brother with them. So, brief context there. Now, I also want to say just a quick word, just by way of reminder, that what we're studying right now with the life of Joseph and, and Genesis is what we call a narrative genre. That is to say, it's a story being told. It's God's story, the story of Jacob and his, and, uh, his sons and Joseph. And so with the narrative, when we think about the style and interpretation, it's not going to give us verse after verse of doctrine the way one of Paul's letter, letters might, where he says, do this, do that, don't do this, believe this. Instead, narratives are stories that have kind of broad, sweeping themes in them. And what we need to think about is 
drawing out those themes and what we can learn from the characters, and most importantly, what we can learn uh, about God and his work through the story, and consider from the rest of Scripture how that applies to our lives today. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be unpacking a couple themes uh, from Genesis chapters 43 and 44, tying it to other parts of Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, and thinking about what we can learn from the story of Joseph and his brothers uh, in these chapters. When thinking about God's plan, I think there are sort of four rough elements. Again, these aren't hard and fast. Actually, I guess three, three elements, although I'm combining a few things. And we're going to see this plan in Joseph's life and his brothers. We're going to see this plan throughout the Bible. And what I'm going to argue today is that we can see this plan unfolding in our own lives. And there are, again, three parts of it that I'm going to walk through from this story and then the parallels of our lives. So the first part of God's plan that's unfolding here is crisis. All right, crisis. And then after crisis comes repentance and deliverance that God is orchestrating in various ways in this story and throughout scriptures. So we have crisis, repentance, and deliverance. And then finally, we have restoration and blessing that we see here and that we see through Scripture and in our own lives. So what's the crisis? Just to remind you, I'm going to look at uh, some verses from the very end of the passage for last week. Genesis chapter 42, verses 35 and 36. They've returned from their trip. They're um, relating to Jacob what happened, and then verse 35, as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw this, saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. So this crisis that Jacob and his family are experiencing has physical and spiritual dimensions. In the physical dimension, uh, they're in the middle of a famine. Obviously, that's a big problem, getting enough food to eat. That's sort of what is driving them to Egypt the first time and driving them to go back to Egypt the second time. They don't have enough food. Then they also have uh, the loss of Joseph, although that was you know, 20 years earlier. But they have the recent loss of Simeon. They went to Egypt to get food the first time, and they came back without Simeon. And now Jacob is afraid that if they go to Egypt again with Benjamin, Benjamin might not return. So you've got famine. From Jacob's perspective, he's losing or has lost children. Uh, physically, their circumstances are far from ideal. But I think there's also a deep spiritual crisis going on here, uh, both with the brothers as they're dealing with their guilt of what happened in the past, but also with Jacob. And you see this, I think, in two parts of the verses I just read. So first, they find the money in their sacks. Remember, Joseph had told his steward to put the money that they paid for their grain with back in their sacks um, of grain without letting them know. They travel all the way back to Canaan. They discover the money they thought they had paid to the Egyptians. They found their money there. And rather than responding with joy, thanksgiving, this is God's blessing, isn't this wonderful, they respond with fear, right? They think, oh no, there's been a mistake, the Egyptians will think we've stolen from them. Again, they're already on edge because Joseph kept Simeon in prison. 
so they and their father, both of them, all of them, they see the find the money in the sacks, and their response is fear. What does this mean for us going back to get more food from the Egyptians? And then you have this sort of crisis of faith, uh, I think, in Jacob. Again, it's not played up in a huge way here, but I think the end of uh, verse 36 is telling, where Jacob, after talking about losing his sons, he says, everything is against me. All right. Over the past couple of weeks, as I've meditated on this passage, that line has come up a few times, where I'm sort of like, everything is against me. Uh, and then it's like, you know what, that's not the response that we should have, remembering that God is for us. But here you have Jacob, everything is against me. Not really a posture of faith in that moment. Uh, fear, feeling like the world is against him. And I think it, I also want to highlight there the contrast with how Joseph has been living in Egypt, right? He has actually been sold into slavery, been in a foreign land, been unjustly accused, uh, and yet God has been with him. He was with him in Potiphar's house, blessed everything that Joseph was doing, blessed everything he was working on so that Potiphar gave him complete control over the house. He was unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife and sent to prison. And yet even in prison, God was with him and blessed his time and work in the prison so that the head of the prison put Joseph in charge there too. So Joseph is being blessed by God. He is being faithful to God even in captivity. And then you can see at the end of chapter 41 that Joseph is very well aware that God is for him and providing him. And so Genesis chapter 41 verses 50 to 52 say, Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So in the naming of his sons here, we see Joseph is very aware of God being with him and God caring for him even in a strange land away from his family. Okay, but back to the, the story here. So we've got the, the setting, the first part of God's plan unfolding, the crisis, the physical and spiritual crisis that Jacob and the brothers are experiencing. Then we have the second part, and this is kind of the meat of the story uh, that was read earlier, uh, where we see repentance and deliverance in the lives of Joseph's brothers and his family. So of course, and you'll hear about this more next week as we move into kind of the, the final resolution of this story, but there's physical deliverance, that God works miraculously, planning well ahead of time, knowing that he was ordaining a famine for seven years. How could Jacob and his family, the Israelites, how could they survive? And he sends Joseph into Egypt and raises Joseph up to be the leader of Egypt. And so it's through Joseph and his position in Egypt that Jacob and his sons are delivered and their families are delivered from the famine. So you have God's physical deliverance of Israel from the famine going on here. By the way, this deliverance is not just for Israel, right? God has also delivered Egypt through this process. If Joseph hadn't been there, if he hadn't interpreted the dreams, people in Egypt would be dying of famine. Uh, we read elsewhere that people were coming from all over the world to Egypt, all over the Middle East area, coming to Egypt for food. So 
Not only was God physically providing for his people, the Israelites, but God was also providing for the Egyptians and for others in the area uh, through Joseph and interpreting the dream and the wisdom that he gave to Joseph. But more important, I think, for our purposes, you know, besides the physical deliverance that God is bringing about, we have spiritual deliverance and transformation going on. And Pastor John touched on this last week some. I'm going to develop it more today. Spiritual deliverance, I think, illustrated through the life and story of Judah. Right? Judah, I think, encapsulates the work that God is doing uh, and how God is rescuing his people. The spiritual deliverance, so think about where Judah has been and what Judah is coming from. So, of course, Judah was one of the brothers who betrayed Joseph into slavery. In fact, it was Judah who suggested, they were going to kill Joseph, it was Judah who suggested, well, let's sell him for some money to these traders who are passing by. So that was Judah, okay? Uh, we heard many weeks ago uh, when John, Pastor John was preaching about Judah and Tamar, how Judah abandoned his family for a time. He went away to live with foreigners, so he abandons them. He lives selfishly, taking whatever he wants, so taking the Canaanite woman, Shua, and having sons by her, eventually taking his daughter-in-law, Tamar, mistaking her for a prostitute. He raised unruly and wicked children who were put to death by God. That's how wicked they were. These were his children. He was their dad. And again, it's not that parents by any means are totally responsible for everything their children do, uh, but you get the sense that he probably wasn't a great father if this is what was happening uh, with his children, that they were, they were growing up this way. And we have other evidence that he was, you know, not a great guy, too, in the way that he treats Tamar, right? When her, his first son is put to death by God, and his second son uh, dishonors God and Tamar, and abuses her, uh, and is put to death. Judah, instead of caring for Tamar, his daughter-in-law, sends her back to her father's house, sends her away, okay? He's not going to take care of her. And he says, go back until my youngest son is old enough, and then you can marry him. Of course, his youngest son grows up, becomes old enough, but Judah doesn't give Tamar to him, even though that's what law and custom and, you know, compassion at the time would have dictated. He doesn't do it out of fear and out of selfishness. Uh, and then you remember Tamar's plot to um, basically seduce, <coughs> sort of seduce Judah. He was very welcome to being seduced. Um, and then when Tamar becomes pregnant from Judah, and it's told to, to Judah that she's been immoral, that she's become pregnant. Judah is outraged, sort of like self-righteous, hypocritical outrage. And he demands, as Pastor John pointed out, basically the harshest penalty that he could, right? Well, she should be killed. And then, of course, God intervenes. Uh, Tamar sends him his tokens and says, hey, you know, this is who the father of the, the children and Judah repents. But all of this, and I encourage you to go back and listen to, to Pastor John's sermon on this. I think it was really illuminating. But all of this to show Judah is not a great guy for several chapters, okay? He's abandoning family. He's selfish. He is hypocritical. Uh, and yet, we see a different Judah by the time we get to our chapters today, okay? After the, the brothers come back to Egypt the second time, bringing Benjamin with them, 
They go and they eat with Joseph, and Joseph treats them really well. They basically have a small party. Joseph sends them off again. Again, he puts their money in their sacks, but this time he's going to test them by putting his silver cup in Benjamin's sack, basically framing Benjamin for stealing the cup. And when the steward and the Egyptians go out and stop the, the Israelites on their way home, and they search the bags and find this uh, stolen cup in Benjamin's sack, the brothers rip their clothes. They can't believe it because now Benjamin is not going to be able to return home. He's guilty. This is bad news for their father. And this all sets the scene for where we see a very different Judah. A Judah with a different position within his family and a Judah with a different disposition towards those around him. And so they're brought into Joseph's presence after uh, the cup has been found in Benjamin's sack. And Joseph says, why have you done this? Why have you done this evil thing? And then Genesis chapter 44, verse 16 says, And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Right? Judah is here. He's not making any excuses. He's like, what can we say? You know, there's nothing to be said. What shall we say? What can we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out our guilt. And then Joseph says, well, I won't keep you all, right? I'm just going to keep the one who stole the cup. The rest of you are free to go. And then we hear again from Judah. He's the spokesman now. This is going to be important later. Judah explaining no dice. We can't go home without Benjamin. We can't leave without him. Okay, and he explains why. It'll, it'll you know, make their father heartbroken. And here we see uh, at the end of chapter 44, verses 33 and 34, we see Judah with a different heart than he had 20 years earlier. He says, Now therefore, please let your servant, let me, remain in Egypt as a slave instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me I fear to see the evil that would find my father so here you see sort of the polar opposite of what happened 20 years ago Judah sending Joseph into slavery not caring about Joseph obviously not caring about the feelings of his father Right? Just wanting to get rid of him uh, out of anger and hatred. And now you see him taking the place or offering to take the place of Benjamin. All right? He's not trying to make excuses. He's not trying to save his own skin. He's not trying to get out of it. He's offering himself in place of Benjamin, both for the sake of the boy and also for the sake of his father. All right? major shift, a 180, and this is the result of 20 years of God working. Uh, and I was struck, too, in his response to Joseph when he says, what shall we say, what shall we do? I see this, again, as, as revealing a lot of humility. And I thought about this parallel passage in Job. If you think about Job, a man who was righteous, who God was pleased with, but the devil comes and asks God to let the devil... Um, torment Job, basically. He says, Job only honors you because you give him good things and take care of him. 
And so God lets um, Satan torment Job but not kill him. And Job is distressed, obviously. He has these friends who come and comfort him with very cold comfort. And Job is complaining to God, saying, hey, I've been righteous. Why is all this happening to me? And then God shows up at the end of the book and speaks to Job and to his friends. And this is what the Lord says. This is Job chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then we have the response from Job, which I find very similar to Judah's response uh, when he's talking to Joseph, where Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. God continues to correct and rebuke him. And then Job responds later in chapter 42, saying, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You've said, who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You said, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Of course, there are other passages in the Bible where we see people encountering God and there are no words. You think about Isaiah saying, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. We have this posture, again, that I think we see in Judah to a lesser extent, because he's speaking to Joseph as opposed to God, but saying, well, I have nothing, right? I have no wisdom. I have no answer. I have no solution. What can I say? Uh, and I think that is a theme that we see in many parts of Scripture, of this sort of humility. I don't have the resources to fix this. So you see humility, you see repentance, you see a changed heart here. And then we move into the, the God's plan unfolding further, the third part of restoration and blessing. All of this that's going on with Judah, you see this humility, this repentance, it's all part of God's broader plan where he is positioning Judah to be the leader of Israel. Okay, so by the time our story happens, the second trip to Egypt, Judah has become the unofficial leader of the brothers. It's Judah who persuades Jacob that they have to go back to Egypt to get food and they have to take Benjamin with them. And he promises to guarantee the safety of the boy. It's Judah who talks to his father and persuades him to do that. After the cup has been found and they're going back uh, to Joseph's presence to, you know, uh, ask for mercy. The text says in, in chapter 44, verse 14, it says Judah and his brothers. Okay, Judah is being called out, his brothers. And then, of course, it's Judah who is speaking to Joseph on behalf of the brothers. That's what we have recorded here. Later, we'll look at this in just a second. We see uh, Jacob after they've come to Israel, or sorry, that after Jacob has come to Egypt. Uh, and is about to die, he blesses or, all of his sons in various ways. It's kind of different blessings for them. And the blessing for Judah is very, very prominent and important. And we'll look at that in a second. And then the final piece, and again, most of you know this, is that Judah is the forebearer of David, 
King David, and that means ultimately of Christ, that it's from Judah and his family and his seed that God brings the Messiah and the redemption. So Judah is being moved into this position of prominence, even as his heart is demonstrating humility and change in what he values and what he cares about. Here's the blessing that Jacob gives to Judah. Uh, that is going to carry through into the tribe of Judah throughout Israel's history. This is from Genesis 49, uh, verses 8 through 10. Judah, your brother, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons, his brothers, shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So here you have this co-conspirator selling his own brother into slavery, this man who abandons his family, who lives selfishly and recklessly for many years, looking out for his own sake, now being humbled and then also exalted to be the leader of Israel, and that it is Christ who will come from him. So that, my friends, is restoration, right? This restoration. And what about the, the blessing, the blessing, the restoration? So you have, we just talked about Jacob's blessing. You also have a restored relationship. And again, you'll hear more about this next week as we sort of finish the story. But ultimately, there is restoration, reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers after all these long, long years. And this reconciliation prefigures what Christ does and who he is. Okay? Joseph is a kind of type, uh, uh, foreshadowing of Christ and who God's Messiah would be and what he would do. Both Joseph and Jesus were betrayed for silver by their brothers and their friends. So Joseph by his brothers, Jesus by Judas, who was his brother uh, in terms of his disciple, his follower, his friend. And both Joseph and Jesus are the means of deliverance and salvation for their brothers in different ways. So let's shift and look at the New Testament. The, the, we've talked about how Joseph provides the physical deliverance um, again, God working, but this physical deliverance of food and provision for his family. And God is working this sort of spiritual deliverance and repentance in Judah, and I, I would argue in the rest of the brothers, even though it's not talked about explicitly. But let's talk about Jesus and the kinds of restoration and reconciliation he brings. So after the resurrection, this is in Matthew chapter 28, verses 5 through 10, but the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. 
Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The author of Hebrews emphasizes this theme of the brotherhood that we have with Christ uh, through his work on the cross. So this is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me, since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps those who through fear, uh, he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So to summarize what's going on here, Christ, our brother, sold to suffering and death by our sin. Right? It was our actions, even if we weren't alive 2,000 years ago, he died for our sins, for the lies that we've told, for the lustful thoughts we've had, for the, the love we haven't shown to others. He was sold to suffering and death for our sin. Yet Christ was lifted up and used by God, just as Joseph was being used, to redeem, restore, and reconcile us. And Jesus still does that for believers today. And so as you reflect on this story, and you know the stories that concludes next week, we should be identifying with Joseph's brothers. All right? We are sinful. We've betrayed God. We've done what we ought not to have done. Okay? We are guilty, just as his brothers were guilty, of all sorts of crimes and sins. But also, and this is, I think, very prevalent in our minds now, though it's also true at other times, we live lives that are often in crisis, right? Crisis relating to jobs or to problems with children or to health or to worries about the future. Our lives are often punctuated by crisis, just like Jacob and his family were in crisis. And this crisis or the crises that we face often are beyond our resources to solve, right? We can't simply make the world the way we want it to be. We can't simply wish away or will away our problems. Okay, That our resources in ourselves, in our finances, our communities, our friends, our resources are limited. So we're sinful, we are often faced with crisis, our resources are limited, they're never enough to really bring whole satisfaction to our life. And yet, we are graciously loved and provided for, just as Joseph's brothers were. 
that even though things seemed dark and terrible and Jacob said, everything is against me, God wasn't against them. God was for them. He was working to save and to rescue them, even though they didn't know it, they didn't see it, and things seemed dark. And that theme is an important one, I think, that is relevant to the Christian, to our lives today. And so I want to spend just a little bit of time thinking about some application here, because again, with narratives, we're not called to emulate every single thing that any character does. Uh, often, the characters in the stories have various kinds of special places, right? Most of us are not going to become the second in command to Pharaoh. We're not going to be responsible for storing up grain for seven years of famine. Okay, so those, those are not parallels we can re relate to. But there are themes that we should see and draw out from this story that we see elsewhere in Scripture that can bring encouragement and conviction in our lives. And so first, let's think about God's power and purposes that are so evident in this story. God brings about what he ordained. If you remember, again, months ago, Joseph had these dreams about his brothers and these sheaves of wheat, and all his brothers' sheaves of wheat bowed to his sheaves, right? And then he had a dream that the stars and the sun and the moon bowed to him. And everyone laughed at him or were angry at him. Even Jacob, right, who loved Joseph, said, what are you talking about? Am I going to worship you? And yet we see multiple times in both the first trip and the second trip to Egypt, the brothers are literally bowing to Joseph, right? The dream has been fulfilled that Joseph has this position of power and preeminence that God has given him. His dream has come to pass. The dreams of the baker and the cupbearer that Joseph interpreted with God's help, those came to pass. The dream that Pharaoh had about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine also came to pass. Okay, God is working. He's revealing his will and dreams and visions, and he is giving the interpretation, and he is seeing that it happens. And for today, we see God's salvation being worked out for all who believe through in, death, in Christ's death and resurrection that God has promised to save those who call upon him and trust in Christ, and he is doing that, just as he fulfilled all of those dreams, which were forms of promises uh, in this story. And I want to elaborate on this a, a little bit more, because we want to think about what are God's purposes for us, right? Most of us who probably haven't had dreams about our future, like Joseph did or Pharaoh did. So what can we hold on to that God has promised that he will do for us and in us? Okay. As you know, we have the Bible, the scriptures, written by many authors, but all inspired by God. And through it, God has revealed his general promise and plan for all believers, uh, all Christians, from the time of Christ to when Jesus returns. And so I think that the main place we should focus on here, and then I'll bring in a few other points, is in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Again, a familiar passage that says, And we know that for those that love, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, 
he also glorified. All right, there are several things in this short passage that I want to draw out to make sure we're really clear about, uh, because it can be easy to do, have a glib misinterpretation here. So, God works together all things for the good of those who love him. All right, that does not mean that God works all things out so that our life will be easy, or that God works all things out the way we want them to be worked out, or that God will make our life wonderful and easy and, you know, good by the world standard. No, no, no. When he says that God works all things together for good for those who love him, the good he has in mind is the image of his son, that our good is to become more like Christ and to become united with him. And so that can happen through suffering, and often it does happen through suffering. Hebrews talks about how Christ was made perfect through suffering. So even unpleasant circumstances, hard circumstances, things that we don't like, things that we don't understand, and again, you see this in Judah, you see this in the brothers' lives, hard, difficult crises of faith, of circumstances, God is still working for the good of those who love him. Okay, and this is the process that God calls, so he predestined, he calls, and he justifies, that means he makes us right before God, and he glorifies that God has called us, he has saved us, he works in our lives in sanctification, and he promises to bring us to glory, that it is God's work from beginning to end, that's his purpose and his will for the Christian, right? Not that we live in a particular place, not that we have a certain number of children or a certain amount of money. Not that we don't have disease or sickness or fear or heartache. But that we become more like Christ. And that we ultimately become glorified with Christ. That is God's will. That he promises he is working towards that end. And he is working in the lives of those who love and believe in him towards that end. So that's the framework of what God is doing for the believer. And then the New Testament has lots and lots of instructions of what do I do when I face trials and how do I become more like Christ and where, how do I get from here to glory. And so I encourage you as you have time to maybe study, study Romans 12 this week, a great passage about what God calls us to do. Here are a couple highlights from it. In, in verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's being like Christ. Christ did that perfectly all the time. He always knew the Father's will and carried it out. We, because of our fallen sinful natures and our bodies, we don't always know. It doesn't, isn't always readily apparent to us. And so Paul says, renew your mind. Test, be discerning what the will of God is. That is becoming more like Christ. And then verse 11 and 12, or verse 11, he says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in prayer. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And then in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
And of course, there are many more admonitions, just a few I'll highlight here to, that you can spend time thinking about, especially in this time of the coronavirus. Uh, the exhortation not to be idle, okay? 2 Thessalonians chapters 3, verses 6 through 12. Look at that, think about that. Uh, I hope to maybe have conversations with people in the coming weeks and months. How can we not be idle in times when we can't go out and do the things we would normally do, when we can't pursue our normal hobbies, when we can't gather with friends? Uh, for many of us, as we lose jobs or in between jobs, uh, what does it mean to not be idle, to use our time productively? So I encourage you to think about that. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 16 through 12. Also, 2 Timothy 2.22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those other believers who call on the Lord from a pure heart, fellowshipping together. And all of this is to keep in mind the end, right? That God, what he's promised to do for us, exhortations for how we ought to live to become more like Christ, to be conformed to the image of his Son, ultimately for glory, that God has told us how the story ends. I don't know if this is true for you. It's true for me. I've been thinking a fair amount over the past several weeks about mortality, right? The, the idea, the possibility, the inevitability of death, right? If not now, in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, however long, everyone dies, that there's death, and yet there's life after death. And God has come to rescue us from death, that it is only a temporary um, a thing like going to sleep, Paul says. And so here's how the story ends. This is, again, God's promise and his work. In 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10, Peter writes, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But the world will end as we know it. And at the end of Revelation, John writes, Then the angel showed me to the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, 
Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That is God's plan. That's his promise that he is coming again. Uh, now or a hundred years from now, Jesus is returning and we will see him face to face. And his will for our lives now, in the midst of uncertainty and trial and tribulation, is to be diligent, to seek him while he may be found, to be prayerful, to love the saints and uh, those around us. And that is, he promises to be with us and to sanctify us and ultimately to bring us to glory. That is God's ultimate plan unfolding. We see glimpses of it in Genesis with Joseph and his brothers, the reconciliation, the transformation of Judah. We see its perfection in Christ, and we see that plan playing out through the rest of redemptive history. That's where we are, Maranatha. So let me encourage you, continue to hold fast and press on uh, that this too shall pass and that the Lord is near and the Lord will return. So with that, please join me as we pray. Father, thank you for your word that is powerful, that it convicts and it moves and it stirs up our hearts. Uh, Lord, thank you for the stories and the doctrine and the exhortation. Thank you uh, that you have promised to work, that you have not left us alone, that you are drawing us toward yourself, you're sanctifying us, you're delivering us, uh, you're bringing us to glory, that we will be raised with Christ on that last day. Father, I pray again for everyone listening that you would encourage their hearts, even uh, as they go from this back to lives of challenge, uncertainty, fear, difficulty. Lord, I pray that they would have a renewed sense of hope and of trust in you and that you would stir up their hearts and that we would encourage one another uh, to pursue you, uh, to love one another, to live faithfully until you come again. Lord Jesus, come soon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.